I did fail to mention the fact that our friend who worships with us frequently, uh, Luis Alberto Luis Rodriguez, down in Cuba, called me this week. Um, and he just wanted to hear my voice and know that I was okay. And that was a real blessing. And um, he celebrated his birthday this week. Uh, I think it was 51. Uh, but we want to keep him in our prayers because he's also going through some medical issues trying to find out exactly what's causing the problems and uh, not getting the best uh, cooperation from the medical people in Cuba. So we want to keep him in our prayers. Excuses. Don't you get tired of them? At some point, you have or you will hear me say that I have a hard time accepting excuses because I believe that people do exactly what they want to do. We find the money, we find the time for those things that we consider priorities. My father would often be heard saying, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. And I thought, wow, what a, what a brilliant man he was. Now, I never heard him in his defense. I never heard him claim that he was the creator of that statement. I just, he would just say it. And uh, I'm not really sure he knew where it came from. And I would later learn that the statement was actually, it actually originated from a guy known as Billy Sunday, uh, William Ashley. Billy Sunday, who was an outfielder in the nation, baseball's National League, playing for, now this will tell you the time frame, playing for the Chicago White Stockings. Uh, that's right, back in the 1800s. And he, he actually would walk away from baseball at the height of his career and uh, to become an evangelist. And there are many who consider him to be one of the most influential um, Evangelist during the first two decades of the 20th century. Uh, and though I'm sure that he heard fellow ball players make all kinds of excuses, he certainly heard many more as a preacher of God's Word. The problem being addressed in this second section of Romans, which began with chapter 2, verse 1, and continues through chapter 3, verse 8, is the inability of the law, the inability of keeping rules and regulations as a means for obtaining salvation. And so, as we began chapter 2 last Sunday, we were immediately confronted with a statement, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. But who's Paul addressing by saying, Oh man, every one of you. I believe it includes us. Now I know, this starting with verse 17, the second half of the chapter, which we will be coming to October the 30th, the Lord willing, the second half is clearly addressed to the Jews. Because at that point he writes, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, 
But in these first 16 verses of chapter 2, it seems to me as though Paul is is addressing a broader community of people that certainly would have included most Jews, but would have also included pious Gentiles, uh, people such as Seneca and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, men whose superior moral character, character would separate them from those depraved degenerates that Paul had just described in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. That's why F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, says that this section is about the moralist. Or as John Stott emphasized, they are critical moralizers. They're people who can clearly identify the problems of others, but somehow are able, unable to see themselves as unworthy sinners. And we know many of those people if we're not willing to recognize that in ourselves as well. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that in this particular passage, it applies to all who have access to special revelation. Not just the general revelation of of the created world, but once again, it includes us. It's written for those who have been blessed with the Old Testament or the New Testament, and especially those who have both. And it specifically applies to anyone who expects some form of special privilege, some form of divine partiality because of his or her external relationship to that revelation. The problem is that on our own, we are all without excuse because we are all sinners. And we are all continually falling short of the glory of God or falling short of glorifying God. And yet, we excel at excuse making. And the reminder of Paul is that we have no excuse. You remember George Washington Carver, who he was? Though he was able to go on to teach agriculture at Tuskegee Institute, he had every reason to make excuses if he would have chosen just to go with the flow and do nothing. Born into slavery in the Deep South in the 1860s. Kidnapped from his home in Missouri along with his mother and sister by night raiders who took them off to Arkansas refused entrance into many colleges before he finally found one that would accept him and on the day that he showed up he was turned away because he was black. But he made no excuses. He just pushed on to success becoming the first black student to attend and graduate from Iowa State Agricultural College which is now called Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. He would later receive his Master of Science degree in Agricultural Science and would become the school's first black professor. And mostly because of his pioneering work regarding the many uses of the peanut. Remember that? In 1916, Carver was one of the first Americans to be made a member of the Royal Society of Arts in England. But back to excuses. 
In the words of George Washington Carver, 99% of the failures come from people who have the habit of making excuses. And I don't think he's far off. Because Paul's reminder to us is we have no excuse. Along the same line, Benjamin Franklin would say, he that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. So the first question that we need to be asking ourselves is, are we taking responsibility for our behavior and for our choices? Or are we making excuses? And here's the dilemma. Do you realize that grace is one of the most frequently used biblical words by people? At the same time, it may be one of the most commonly misunderstood biblical words. Many religious people understand and believe that grace refers to something that is free. But they mistakenly also believe that it's something that is unconditional. God's agape love is unconditional. And while it is true that the grace of God by which we are saved is free, it is not without conditions. For instance, in support of grace being a free gift, you'll often hear people quoting Romans 3.24. Just after Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he continues by saying, and all and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Yes, we are justified by His grace as a gift and gifts are free another passage often quoted though usually taken out of context is Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 by grace you have been saved now they may go on to include verses 8 and 9 which says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, as a result of works so that no one may boast. There again, the gift of God. But have you ever wondered why most people stop without quoting verse 10? Where Paul goes on to say, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now listen closely because this is important. The return of our good works is expected. And justification and righteousness are closely related. To justify means to declare righteous. But it does not mean to make righteous. Justification is a legal. It's a judicial term. It has to do with our relationship to the law. 
It's best understood as a declaration made by a judge once his final decision has been made as to guilt or innocence. And it's a statement made during the punishment phase. You see, when he justifies a defendant, the judge declares that that person is now in right standing with the law. Done their time. I've been there many times at which when the case came to court, the person had been held in jail from the time of the offense up to the court date, and the judge found them guilty, but then he said, and you are being penalized so many days in jail, and we are crediting the time you've already served. Okay? You see, though some people say it's equivalent to the judge declaring the defendant not guilty, that's a bit misleading. Because you and I are guilty. We are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. We've already been adjudicated guilty. You see, it actually has more to do with the penalty phase. Therefore, it means there's no additional penalty for you other than the pain, the loss, the embarrassment that we've already experienced by means of our sinfulness. Now, that being said, the fact that a person is saved by the grace of God and that by His grace, which is freely available, we do have salvation, that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean salvation has no conditions. There are some things that a sinner has to do to be saved. Though salvation cannot be earned. Please hear me making that fine distinction. We cannot earn our salvation, but there are some things we have to do. And I believe it's due to this misunderstanding of the meaning of grace. Uh, or, I think in some cases, intentional distortion by some. That a huge problem exists regarding the saving, the sacramental works of the church. Such as the depth of meaning in marriage as taught in Ephesians 5. Or how about in communion, as taught by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Remember what James says, or Paul said it also, about how when we come before the table, Paul especially said when we come before the table and we partake in an unworthy manner, why? We're bringing problems on ourselves. James says some have even died because of not partaking in a worthy manner. And I think, in fact, this misconception of the word grace has been used by many people to dissuade some people from being baptized. They'll argue that if one is saved through baptism, then salvation is not free. And baptism is a meritorious work turned salvation. That's a quote. Such a claim is a misunderstanding or a distortion of the truth that I believe is hindering or at very least endangering some people in terms of their salvation. 
In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says that when you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 says that baptism corresponds to the salvation of the eight persons on the ark, Noah and his family. And he goes on in verse 21 to say, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the power is not in the water, but in the resurrection that is symbolized by our willingness to die and rising out of the waters of baptism to a new life. Now, we're going to look at that in more detail in the months to come. But a crucial passage is Romans 6, verses 1 to 11, the one that I'm going into in-depth study in. Paul's argument's pretty straightforward. First, in baptism, we participate with Christ as we die to sin. That's the foundational fact of Paul's vehement rejection of the notion that God's grace gives us a license to sin. You know, once saved, always saved. I was a student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary when they caught the guy that was known as uh, the Lover's Lane murderer in the New York City area. And I heard with my own ears, not one of my fellow students, one of my professors with a newspaper in front of him saying, when he read that that man was a member of such and such a Baptist church in that area, oh, well, at least he saved. Murdered all of these people, no indication of any repentance, remorse. But because he had been baptized, that's not what the Bible teaches. And so Paul asked how we can live in, in, in what we have died to. How can you live in sin? You've died to that. And the way in which we died to sin is that our baptism unites us with Christ in His death. Verse 4 of Romans 6, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul's third point is that we can't expect to be involved in resurrection of life if we've not shared in his death by means of baptism. And, and he says that clearly in verses 6 and 7. It's in baptism that our former self is crucified with Christ in order that we might be freed from sin slavery. It's a condition that needs to be met, though hardly a work by which we can earn our salvation. I've shared with you before, I know many people that have been baptized for the wrong reasons, that went in dry sinners, came out wet sinners. The water is not magical. But every single account of conversion, bar none, every single account of conversion in the book of Acts includes baptism. That speaks volumes. So here's my image to help us understand. 
I think everybody here is probably familiar with the last will and testament. Generally speaking, it's a legal document that coordinates the distribution of your assets after death, can even appoint a guardian for minor children. It's important to have. And it allows you to communicate your wishes clearly and precisely. And, by the way, it is something that's used as a metaphor in the Scriptures for talking about how we are heirs of the blessings of God. But, do you know what else a will does? It sets conditions. If you are going to obtain your share of the will, those conditions have to be met regardless of what they are. That's up to the person who writes the will. And nobody can say, well, that's not fair. I mean, they can say that, but it isn't going to mean anything. If the person was in their right mind when they created the will, it can say they have to stand on their head for an hour and a half. And if they want to obtain their portion of the will, they better be learning how to stand on their head for an hour and a half. Now, it's still a gift. They're not doing anything to earn that gift. They're just meeting the conditions. It doesn't say how you earn your share of the assets. They're being given. But it does stipulate certain conditions that have to be met. Two weeks ago at Bible study, we heard Paul tell Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, which is baptism, by the way, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, in whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We become heirs when we have met the conditions that have been set. So let's do a little digging into our text. My, my introduction is much longer than my sermon, by the way. Romans 2, verses 6 to 11. He will render to each one according to his works, to those by patience and well-doing, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. May God add its blessing to our reading of this word. I think the first principle is rather plain. Verse 6 is pretty straightforward. God judges our actions. To presume on God's kindness, as if its purpose were to encourage license, not penitence, is a sure sign of stubbornness and of, of an unrepentant heart. And we saw that in verse 5 last week. That kind of obstinacy can have only one end, 
it means that we're storing up for ourselves not some precious treasure which is what the verb Paul used would normally mean but we're storing up for ourselves the awful experience of divine wrath on the day of God's judgment when his righteous judgment it says will be revealed he's quoting Psalm 62 verse 12 possibly Proverbs 24 verse 12 and they, they say the same thing but in the form of a question but it also occurs in the prophecies of Hosea and Jeremiah and is sometimes elaborated with a vivid expression I'll bring down on their heads on their own heads what they've done we cannot expect to be somehow just vindicated of what we do. I even know many people who want to say they're sorry, but they don't want to make amends. They don't want to make recompense. And that's just as wrong biblically. And this isn't just Old Testament theology. Jesus himself repeated it. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear. Who? All. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And for those of you who have gone through Revelation with me, it's a recurring theme in Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 23. All the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Revelation comes to a conclusion. Chapter 22, verse 12. Jesus says, See, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. Now I promise you, go study. I have not taken those passages out of context. It's the principle of exact retribution. The foundation of justice. It's a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed which will require public and verifiable evidence to support them. And the only public evidence available will be our works, what we've done, what we've been seen to do. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. And both Paul and the Lord's brother James teach that truth. Remember what James said? I by my works will show you my faith. And Paul, faith works through love. As we saw in chapter, in verses 7 to 10 that we just read, it's an elaboration of verse 6. The alternatives are presented in two carefully constructed sentences which concern our goal, what we seek, 
our works, what we do, and our end, where we are going. And notice the basis on which the separation is to be made. It'll be a combination of what we seek in terms of our ultimate goal in life and what we do, our actions in the service either of ourselves or of others. And you know what? Very similar to the teaching of Jesus. How did Jesus end the Sermon on the Mount? Don't be hearers of the Word and not doers. And he uses the example of the wise man who built his house on the rock as one who heard and did. And the foolish man as one who heard and didn't do. And with regard to the two final destinations, he speaks of those who by patience are involved in well-doing. Their destination is eternal life. Which by the way, Jesus defined in terms of knowing Him and knowing the Father. And the reminder or the remainder are described as those who do not obey the truth. Paul describes their destiny as wrath and anger. Verse 8. Which is the awful outpouring of God's judgment. Let me move quickly on to the third point. It's a very important consideration. If our works are important and impinge on our final judgment, isn't it a blessing to you to know that the standard of judgment by which we will be judged is no partiality? Verse 11, For God shows no partiality. The only favoritism that God shows, if that's even a good and proper term, has to do with our allegiance, with our loyalty, with our trust, and our obedience to His Son. We're guilty. We have no excuse. But listen to what takes place during the punishment phase of the trial. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it, from His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Penalty phase. And if anybody's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We're judged guilty by what we do. And we need to be realizing that we need to get about the business of doing good works, being witnesses. But aren't you thankful that in the punishment stage, 
Jesus comes out with the book of life in the singular. And he says, ha, oh, wait a minute. Autumn Latimer, there's her name right there. Autumn, you don't have to go to Lake Park. Come on, this way. Fran, yeah, your name's here. Come on in. Uh, Rich, Rich and Cindy, gosh. Yeah, here you are. Come on in. Each one of us. And I could go around, name by name by name. Those of us who accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, not just Savior, Lord and Savior. Lord means that we have agreed to be willing, obedient citizens of His kingdom. You can't have Him as your Savior if you're not willing for Him to be the Lord of your life 24-7, 365. I'm sorry, this might seem harsh. This might seem judgmental. But it's not my words. The writer of Hebrews says, Do not forsake the assembling together our some are in the habit of doing. You can't have Jesus as your Savior. You can't have God as your Father if you're not willing to have the church as your body along with them. There's a lot of people out here today who are confused, who say they're Christians, but never darken the doors of a church anywhere to worship God. And there is nothing biblical that affirms their Christianity if they won't have anything to do with the bride of Christ. But in the penalty phase, even though our works are still examined because they speak volumes concerning our character, our integrity, our sincerity. There are even passages that i got to admit I don't understand about rewards. I mean, how much better reward could there be? I'll be glad just to get into heaven. I'm not going to worry about any other rewards that might be in store. But there are passages that talk about rewards. What it's dependent on is wrapped up in the song that we're about to sing. Our hymn of commitment. Whether or not we are truly willing to kneel at the cross. Let's pray.